Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Today, President Biden is meeting in the White House with congressional leaders from both parties to talk about legislation. What can they get done? One of the key topics, of course, is infrastructure. So it is a perfect time to chat with our next guest, Ed Mortimer. He's the vice president for transportation and infrastructure at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And Greg Regan, he's a president of transportation and trades department at the AFL-CIO. Uh, they both join us here today to talk about infrastructure. Ed, let's start with you here. You know, from the Chamber of Commerce's perspective, what do you think or how much should uh, we allocate this year in this upcoming plan to infrastructure? What's the number in your perspective? Paul, so thanks for the opportunity to speak. Um, from the business community's perspective, um, this is a critical issue as we're getting through a pandemic. Um, we need to have a, a federal vision and investment to build 21st century infrastructure. And so we're teamed with my colleague at the AFL-CIO to say inaction is not an option. Um, and we look at infrastructure in, 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 a, in a broad sense. We look at our physical infrastructure, focusing on our transportation networks, our water systems, rural broadband, our energy grid. Um, and so, you know, the investments that need to be made, we need to not just fix what we currently have, but we need to know with autonomous vehicles and drones, we need to modernize. And so, you know, the numbers are high, but I will tell your listeners, the numbers of doing nothing are pretty high, too. Uh, the average American loses $1,500 a year due to inadequate infrastructure currently. Our economy loses $700 billion in lost productivity. So doing nothing actually costs us more than making the investments necessary to provide long-term economic growth for our economy and modernizing our infrastructure. Why has, you know, I've lived obviously for decades in America and I've lived um, for a little over a decade here in, in Germany um, altogether. Both economies have crumbling infrastructure and these are the leading, you know, industrial economies of the world. Why have we let it go for so long, Greg? I think we've just rested on our laurels. We, uh, you know, we built it up. Uh, we made the massive investments to build the interstate highway system, to, to build out Amtrak, to do um, to, to make these big things. And then I think everyone said, well, our job is done here. Um, I think there was an austerity period in our in our government that that was hesitant to make any big investments. And frankly, we've waited too long. Uh, everything has. And, and unfortunately, that's the way sometimes government works is you wait until uh, wait until it's it's right in your face before the problems right in your face before you have to solve it. But. I think we're past that point now, and we need to, to have the leadership and have the federal investments that can, can uh, re rebuild our infrastructure and make us a modern, competitive country again. Greg, how much of infrastructure spending generally do you think should be some type of public-private uh, effort as opposed to simply the government coming in? We think there is a, a role for P3s, public-private partnerships, uh, in our infrastructure, you know, in general, I don't think that is the, the primary solution here. I think we need big federal spending, um, and the states and local governments will meet, uh, will oftentimes share in that cost as well. Um, there are some places where P3s make sense, um, but I think that is, 
for us, it's a relatively small part of, of the overall pie. Ed, you mentioned um, this isn't just, you know, the plain vanilla infrastructure that we that we think of um, roads, bridges, ports, uh, airports. But the, the, the bill that the president has proposed is also about child care and nutrition and, you know, broadband deployment. How important is that other stuff to the U.S. infrastructure? So I think that's kind of what the debate is going on right now. Um, as you mentioned, President Biden put out the American Jobs Plan, which included a lot of the care economy. And we can, again, from the business community, we think those are important and they need to be addressed. But I think we're trying to get bipartisan consensus so we can actually get a bill to the president's desk this year. And if you look at the Republican counterproposal that was put out by Senator Shelley Moore Capito, there does appear to be some bipartisan consensus that the physical infrastructure is something that can be addressed in the federal legislation this year. Um, we may be able to tackle some of those other issues down the road, but let, our view is let's get what can get done this year now. And so that would be more focused on the physical infrastructure. And then let's continue that conversation and see if there are other ways that we can address some of the other issues that the president has brought up through the American Jobs Program. Greg, I guess from labor's perspective, what do you think are the top two or three uh, items on your wish list uh, that you'd like to give to President Biden and, and leaders of Congress here? We, we would like to see what you know, the America's Jobs Plan, however, however Congress ends up finally addressing that. But the, the key part for that is, is the big upfront investment in our, in our various transportation systems. Um, you know, a stimulative type of investment that will sort of reset the standard for our country, uh, allow us to get some of the big projects done, like Gateway, for instance, or the BNC Thank you. tunnel on the northeast. <laughs> I mean, Gate, Gateway, it, it's insane that we haven't done that. We're, we're talking about over 100-year-old tunnels um, that are... I go through know, them, I go through them twice a day, and I kind of have my fingers crossed every time we go into the tunnels. It's 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 amazing, and and the fact that we haven't found the you know on, in in the you know, we're twenty percent of our GDP uh, is supported by that region, and we can't fix hundred year old tunnels. It shows that our priorities are kind of out of whack here. And if you go down in Baltimore, the BNP tunnel that one was built during uh, during U.S. Grant's first term as president, <laughs> and that has that hasn't been been addressed. So. You know, but we need the big money from the federal leadership to get uh, from the federal government to get all that stuff done. And then, you know, when you look at those big projects, they're going to succeed when a lot of the local spending, whether it be transit, whether it be other rail projects, highways and bridges, airports, all of these things need to be uh, upgraded. And they, they're going to rely on each other to be successful down the road. All right. And this is uh, this week is designated United for Infrastructure Week. It's actually the ninth annual but I have to admit, the first time I've heard of it, what what does that campaign hope to then accomplish? Paul, so I think, you know, you mentioned this is our ninth year. And so, you know, we're glad to see it's taken nine years, but we're now at the top of the federal agenda. Um, and this year, our, our theme is uh, lead with infrastructure. Um, inaction on infrastructure this year is not an option from our perspective. Yep. And we truly want to see this federal legislation bipartisan solutions that will provide right. a long-term blueprint for infrastructure moving forward. Ed Mortimer and Greg Regan, thank you very much. This is Bloomberg. Now, as Paul said, we're going to bring in Brian Smolik right now. He is a principal 
and portfolio manager at Hood River, Hood River Capital Management. They have three and a half billion dollars under management. Brian, um, let me first get your reaction to the inflation print. It was twice as high as the highest um, uh, the f- highest forecast, I guess, in our survey. And if you look at the core number, the biggest gain since 1982. Yeah, de- inflation is definitely ticking up. When we talk to our companies, you see it across the board. It's not that surprising to us, given the amount of money that's been printed how expansionary money policy has been, and the fact that we're paying people to not work. So you're seeing you're seeing wage pressure as the economy is coming back with a vengeance. So that combination isn't great. I think it's going to persist, and you have to take into account whenever you're looking at any sort of stock, can they manage cost pressures or margins going to hold up, and does the top line benefit of reopening outweigh the negatives of cost pressure coming from inflation. Brian, you guys uh, there manage and focus on small cap stocks. Give us a sense of kind of how they've been performing kind of throughout this pandemic and kind of what what's your view of that uh, uh, kind of that part of the market right now? So small cap has been extremely strong since the pandemic has broken. There's been multiple reasons for that fact for that to happen. Uh, small cap companies have more of domestic focus, so uh, top line has held in better. Small cap companies are also more, nim- more nimble, so they can adjust their business models, um, and and they don't have as much currency exposure. So so that's so that's a good thing too. Um, if you look on an absolute basis, the Russell 2000 Growth Index last year was up almost 40 percent, so it's huge. Uh, this year, it's not up as much, but you've seen a big shift from within the index and within small cap in general from growth to value. So it's just been more important over the last four or five months to pay attention to valuation, which is obviously something that we focus on at the river. Will small caps get hit harder by wage pressure? I mean, we talk about uh, um, people not wanting to come back to work. They're getting paid to stay Mm -hmm. home, essentially. And Paul and I hear this from you know hotel operators, restaurant owners, etc. But the, the bottom line is, um, if you pay them more, they'll come in, right? So uh, is, is that going to hit right. smaller businesses harder? I think for the most part, they'll be able to manage through it. And at Hood River, we can do it on a case-by-case basis. You just want to be in businesses that have pricing power and can put through cost pressures in a relatively time, timely fashion. So like, for example, if, if you're a bank or insurance company, you can do that pretty quickly. Um, if you're selling mattresses, you can take up the price of your mattresses if, if, if demand exceeds supply. So for the most part, I think it's okay, but there are going to be surprises, and you have to be able to manage it. And, and that's, that's why in small cap, it, it makes sense to use an active manager because it's inefficient. You can figure out what businesses are going to be able to adjust to the dynamic inflationary environment. So, Brian, I know uh, you guys are overweight financials. Talk to us about some of those regional banks why you like that part of the market, and presumably steepening yield curves to their benefit, and presumably, I guess, a, a reopening trade to the economy has got to be good for their, their loan book. Yeah, exactly. So, so you have loan growth that's going to be accelerating and margins, which are basically at all-time lows because the yield curve has been terrible for their business. And now if that improves, you can see a dramatic uptick in their margins and acceleration in their loan growth, and the stock's are relatively inexpensive when we look at the rest of the market. You can easily find 
a regional bank that trades anywhere from 10 to 13 times earnings. Compare that to your typical tech stock or biotech stock or software company. It's a lot more expensive. Those stocks were run up during the pandemic. And that's part of the reason why you've seen this trade from, from growth to value. It's because you're seeing relative value of companies like regional banks that are seeing their businesses improve and they look absolutely cheap. And your pick is Western Alliance. We like Western Alliance. We also own Tri-State, which is another one. The reason why I like Western Alliance, they've had a good loan growth franchise over an extended period of time. They've been able to grow their loans north of 10%. They have a best-in-class efficiency ratio covering at around 40%. Uh, They just did a really accretive deal, which we think is over 30% accretive to earnings, uh, called the Marahome. So the earnings estimates need to move up fairly substantially for next year, and it's cheap at around 11 times earnings. You also like purple. You mentioned mattress sellers, and I thought, what's that? where's that coming from? But I see that you, you like purple, and I know there are a few Bloomberg anchors who sleep on those mattresses. Yeah, so uh, the Smolich just bought three of them, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and we, like it. We, we like the product a lot. Uh, it's, it's a lot better than a, than a foam mattress, which, which tends to, to sleep a little hot and loses its shape over time. Uh, Purple yeah. is the only one that, that has a special <laughs> polymer, and so 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 there's actually no pressure. You can actually put an egg under you, a soft a soft egg. Oh boy! All right. Crack. <laughs> we're, we're, we're like, but anyway, so 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 purple yep. is, is stealing share. They just pre-announced the quarter yesterday. Right. They beat on top line, and more importantly, they beat on margins. All right, Brian, we're going to leave it there, but that's a good name. We will do some more digging there. We'll chat with you coming up soon. Brian Smollett, principal portfolio at manager at Hood River Capital Management. I want to bring in Mike McGlone, our commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, to talk about cryptos. Mike, we do talk to you um, on a regular basis about cryptos. One of the things we've been hearing a lot more and more over the past months is these uh, these currencies or these blockchain systems have, are becoming regulated and becoming more acceptable and, and, and getting into the mainstream, which to me, you know, as a kind of libertarian, red-blooded <laughs> American is such a bummer. That's why I am so pumped about the internet computer. It is putting another layer of cens- censorship protection between you know, Ethereum smart contracts and, and, and users. Plus, it's been wildly popular. Talk to us about this new um, this new system, and it's got a utility token, of course. Well, that's another thing we both have in common, Matt. We both have that Midwestern sensibility. I'm from <laughs> Chicago. You're Cleveland, right? And you know, Columbus. Just, Columbus. We go. Yeah, Ohio. We, I drive both of them many times in the inter, in Interstate 80, and I'm trying to understand more about what it really is. But what it's what it's catching me and grabbing me is there's so many signs of 2017 like things kept coming in the space like you you and now internet computer might have a good solid use case i just haven't dug into it much lately in fact just i just sent to editors my my ethereum um technical outlook because i want to write a, a, a primer on that for next week and then i look well, at i, I think well, look well, at then th- you're gonna love it i have to say mike you are going to love it because what this does it doesn't necessarily compete with Ethereum, but it helps Ethereum work on a decentralized internet. So, you know, right now, if you use an Ethereum smart contract, chances are you're using it over a website that's hosted by Amazon Web Services or Microsoft. And then you get this big tech governance layer in there that can affect your transaction or, um, 
you know, your outcome. But what the Internet computer does is um, its blockchain works over uh, a number of many multiple different servers around the world, none of which are at any time in control of your contract. So it completely decentralizes um, the, the use of these Ethereum contracts over the Internet and takes out that layer of control that, you know, big tech government would have if you were using it over Amazon or Microsoft. Well, it sounds like a win-win. I'm, I'm so impressed with it. It jumped up so fast. Um, and how long has it been around? I mean, just recently it was launched, right? Well, they've been developing it for years, but um, it's only recently um, been uh, put out there um, on display and immediately was uh, brought in to trade on Coinbase. They started trading on Monday. It's already worth $48 billion in market cap, <laughs> one of the biggest cryptos out there. But the token itself, which is what I keep trying to tell people, isn't as exciting or important as um, the blockchain platform that, that they've created. Which is the case for so many of these things. Well, I right? noticed it's on coinmarketcap.com, it's number nine. It looks like it's moving up rapidly. and I, But to me, it makes complete sense of what's happening, like with Ethereum. Everybody's realizing, oh, wow, this is the platform for the space. It looks like this is a major company. I mean, you look at things like Tether. It's most widely traded right. on the entire space. Tether is an Ethereum token. And it looks like they're all just complementing each other. And the rest of the financial world, like we come back to our old backgrounds, like uh -oh, us young, us older people have to realize, which just embraces technology. And that's what I see is happening. Wall Street financialization of assets. Well, well, I realize they're grabbing on. You say that, Mike, I, as you look at that list of the top cryptos, what I don't see is a jp morgan branded one or a wells fargo branded one to me it's still as i listen to some of these you know big bank ceos they're still not there are they oh, oh no well they're not there also and then there's an investment case you know you you, you what's really tilted this year is if you don't add bitcoin to your portfolio allow your clients to do it you're going to lose money and you may look look really bad 10 years from now but things like Dogecoin, you can't. That's just speculative. So we have to differentiate the difference. It looks like, to me, we have a major use case for internet computer. And then you look at Dogecoin, that's just gambling. So trading versus investing. It looks like inter -compu internet computer might be in Mike. that investment, in the investment bucket. It's, to me, it's annoying, you know, because, and I'll say this, I'm not long crypto. So just everyone knows, you know, I have used this in the past. I might have fragments of a bitcoin in a locked wallet but <laughs> which um, we don't have the be, because i'm because i'm reporting on it I, I never really thought it would be ethical to to buy it i wish i hadn't been so ethical because i'd be driving the lambos right now but <laughs> I, I just think it's fascinating and the dogecoin aspect kind of um it's a bee in my bonnet right because it's <laughs> it's such a it's a meme coin it's so useless and meaningless i mean it's not useless obviously anymore because it's worth a lot of money but it annoys me when people look at the internet computer, which has a silly name, and then they think, oh, this is just another meme coin. Well, this is definitely not another meme coin. I know we can see that. And the key thing I think people need to differentiate about things like Dogecoin, I mean, I have 20-something kids, and all their friends, that's what they talk about, that's what they do. It's fun. It's like, you have okay. more than 20 kids? Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They're in their 20s. And, but that's what they, you know, just think of the money you might have spent at a bar or a restaurant or going right. to a game or going to the track or going to a casino. Why not? We can't, 24-7, you can do it on your phone with your friends and drink at a bar and double-dog dare each other over social media. And to me, that's what's happening. <laughs> On a global scale but then I look at internet computer and whoa this is impressive but this is part of that rapidly advancing technology overwhelming us 
can't buy it on DraftKings. I don't think you can buy Dogecoin on DraftKings yet. But maybe, <laughs> along with your uh, blackjack hands and poker and a tall boy, you could pick it up. I'm recommending Again, that as part of their strategy. Mike McGlone, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for joining us. This is Bloomberg. Let's get over right now to Comvault. The CEO, Sanjay Merchandani, joins us to talk about uh, what businesses can do using data maybe differently in order to uh, increase the their um, or reduce their integrity gap, increase their success. Sanjay, talk to us about what Comvault does first. Um, so Comvault has been in the data business since the beginning. We've been around for 25 years. This year is our 25th anniversary as a company. And we help customers in what we call their data journey, which is about really how they store, protect, manage, and use data. Um, and we do this through a series of um, intelligent data services delivered either through the cloud or on-premise. So, you know, we've been in the data business all through, and that's what we do today. All right, Sanjay, in you know the prior 14 months, the way everybody goes about their daily lives has been upended. The way we work, the way we learn, doing it much more on a remote basis. It, was corporate America, was the average household ready for this from a data perspective, a data storage, a data retrieval, a data, a data security perspective? You know, absolutely not, because what happened was, you know, I, I like to think, I like to simplify things. And in my mind, there were we're sort of we've seen three structural shifts in the last 14 months. First, when the pandemic came upon us, it was all about, gosh, how do we get people working remotely? How does this even happen? So, you know, it was things like firewalls and getting them laptops and changing business process so they could do things differently. We got through that, um, you know, and then quickly got into the phase. We said, how do we optimize this? You know, how do we sort of really make sure that we're doing this right because this is here to stay? And, and that's been going. We're in the throes of that. And then now we're sort of seeing a, a third structural shift that's happening where folks are, you know, are quickly moving to public cloud services, are quickly moving into digital transformational capabilities. And this is where data becomes key. And all through this journey of the last 14 months, what's really come to the fore is that, that, that enterprises, businesses that are looking at data as a, as a vital asset are tend, will tend to do better because it's, it's, you know, it really is now the lifeblood, the core capability inside of a business. And what we do is all the way through, we've helped customers really you know, do that journey, you know, make sure that as they transform, as they go through these structural shifts, data is front and center. It's being protected. It's giving them the asset to analyze, to run their business with. So uh, I'd say that, you know, no one was really prepared uh, to, 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 for what would happen, data protection or, or, you know, using data really turned on its head. But we've been resilient. Um, we've been quick and we've been able to, as a, you know, um, as companies do, turn around and help and, and really get there. So I think we're much better today than we were 14 months ago. And we're not going back? I mean, how much of it is sticky, Sanjay? I think a lot of it is sticky. I think, you know, what it's taught us is, uh, you know, that there are benefits in being able to do things remotely. You know, you don't have to go into your data center for everything. You don't have to travel across the world to have a meal with a customer uh, to close a deal. There are many other ways you can you can get this done. And I think there are some benefits. There's also some some downside, you know, there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of, you know, screen time that that people are happy to get away from and get back in person. But I think there are some things in here that that will stay remote, light touch. Uh, these are these are good things. Um, digital transformation. These are good things, and and I think they're here to stay. Sanjay, one of the things we're concerned about with more and more remote work, remote learning, is the security of the data, and we see that yet again with the Colonial Pipeline hack and the the problems it's causing. Where do you think 
you know, it gets me when you, when you look at the cl- companies that you work with, where are we in terms of really securing our systems and our data? You know, this is a continuous thing. Um, let, let's let, let me oversimplify it. You know, the bad guys, what, what do they want? They want the data. It's not about the infrastructure. It's about the data so much. And, uh, and the new frontier is really, is really the, digital, the digital asset, which is effectively, if I hope, you know, is, is the data. So what we have to do is really think of data as the asset that you have to protect in different ways. It's not just physically, you know, putting, you know, putting bigger walls of moats. It's really, really saying, okay, what data matters? Uh, where does it live? What are the policies we want to have it around? Who gets access to it? And so it's really, it's really doubling down on the way we manage data and the way we think about data that becomes key. You, ha- you know, because the vectors will keep changing. A few years ago, it was a different attack vector. Today, it's it's ransomware. Tomorrow, it'll be something else. What really matters is what are the core assets? What are the concentric circles of data that really, really run your business that are important, and and how do you protect that? Your IP. Uh, and what we do is, is, you know, you're never 100% safe because, you know, things just keep, you know, the, the, the attack surface just gets, keeps getting better. What we have to do is help companies, help businesses who, who don't, who weren't built to have Pentagon level defenses sort of protect their assets in a simplified way. And, and, you know, we're constantly, uh, from our, we're not a security company, but we we look at data as being the, the, the lifeblood of a business, and we do everything we can in our technology to help customers manage that better, protect that better, uh, isolate key things better. Um, but it's a it's a constant journey. Hey Sanjay, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time, Sanjay Merchandani. He's the CEO of Comvault, uh, taking a look at companies' data, uh, storing the data. Are retrieving the data when that data uh, is lost. And so clearly um, that is becoming a bigger and bigger issue for most companies here, particularly data sensitive companies. Uh, as more and more work goes to the cloud, as we uh, work more from home, perhaps learn more from home, more data is being, and applications quite frankly are being uh, put up in the cloud and data security becomes a key issue. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.